Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. I'm Dr. David Fowler, and my guest today is Dr. Greg Plogger. Certainly you know his name as the editor of the textbook of clinical chiropractic, a specific biomechanical approach, which is more affectionately known as the Purple Book. However, his career entails much more than this. He's been actively involved in research and education, but he's also been in private practice, as he is now, and he's been an ambassador for the Gonstead work through it all. Recently, Dr. Plogger posted some videos to YouTube which demonstrate him working with a patient through rehabilitation following a serious accident. I've attached a link to that video in the episode description so you can see it for yourself. Today, Dr. Plogger is going to talk us through the, his thought process so we can understand what he's trying to do and what he's looking for. So without any further ado, Dr. Greg Plogger. Dr. Plogger, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Could, could you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you got into Gonstead Chiropractic? Well, I didn't have any firsthand experience as a chiropractic patient until about a month before I entered chiropractic college. So technically, I, I did get adjusted before I went to chiropractic college, but I was uh, a person who just was in college and went to a career center and decided to become a doctor. And I picked chiropractic, um, without any experience with it. And then I attended life chiropractic college West starting in 1983 and about midway through I transferred to LACC. So I sort of did the, uh, reverse transfer experience. Um, <laughs> and I graduated in December 86 and I started practicing in 87, started teaching in 87 too, in the, um, the laboratory of a low back adjusting class for Gonstead at Life West, uh, starting, uh, even before I had a license, I was starting to, um, be a lab instructor at Life West. And so I got a bug about, uh, research as I was working on the purple book early in my career. And I decided to um, take some time off from practice and finish this book and dabble in a little research. And then that took about 17 years. And um, so then in uh, approximately 2006, I uh, went back into private practice. Um, There's a big event in my life. I got hit by a dump truck at 45 miles an hour. So had a lot of injuries. And, um, and so anyways, I started a uh, practice again and I've been in full-time practice since about 2006, where I was part-time for 17 years before that. And, and then before that I was in full-time practice. I spent some time in Italy at the static clinic in 1988 and 89 and, uh, practiced in a few locations in San Leandro, California, and I've done that two stints there and, uh, I've practiced in, uh, Cupertino, the home of Apple and, uh, taught down at Palmer West. I've taught a little bit when I was at Palmer and Davenport doing a high blood pressure study. And, uh, and occasionally I will teach at Life West, but I haven't really been in the academic world for almost two decades now. And I think it's really helped me in terms of, uh, being a better researcher 
um, by really focusing on the problems in practice. When I was uh, teaching, I found myself teaching very theoretically um, about things that were um, present to me in my little group. And um, that tends to kind of keep you in a, uh, a bubble, an academic bubble. And uh, ironically, now that I've been practicing more, I love research even more, and yet, but I have no time to do it. So I have a lot of ideas about scientific questions, about what I want to investigate, but I'm in practice now, and, uh, and I find that really, really rewarding. I always have, um, and I try to approach practice in a way that has a kind of a research context to it, where I'm always trying to think about how to address the needs of the patient, trying to keep up on literature, trying to give you the best, the patient, the best possible care. And uh, so I have a very evidence-based practice, but it's extremely practical and extremely patient-focused, which I think most practitioners are. Um, one of the things I've tried to do of late is I tend to um, argue with myself a little bit as I'm examining a patient where I I have these questions in my mind, but I have all these biases that I bring to the patient encounter. And a lot of the times we're, uh, as clinicians, we're sort of managing our own anxiety and our desire to fit a patient into a box. So as I've um, matured in practice, I tend to say much less, although I'll sound very verbose during this, <laughs> and I puzzle a lot more. And I'm not particularly dogmatic and um, want the patient to fit in a box that I see. I try to see the patient for how they are. And when you do that, I think you really see the complexity of that patient and patient care. And, um, and I would say early on in my practice, I wanted to try to fit people into my ideology. And now I let... Uh, so I, now I have the ideology of no ideology as I'm examining a patient. And one of the things that I um, uh, discovered was that I, too, can uh, learn new things with new injuries. And one of those things was becoming dizzy and having vertigo and falling down after I had a, a couple of motor vehicle accidents. And that led me to... Um, an ENT doctor who recommended that I need to do balance exercises. And uh, at the time uh, he was recommending I see a physical therapist. I wanted to see somebody a little less costly. And I ended up finding a, um, a great trainer at a, at a major gym who had experience with these balance exercises. His name's Brian Groman. And he was the one that turned me on to this type of uh, rehabilitation and as I found it to be efficacious for myself, and I started studying the literature on it, I started seeing how I could integrate this into a lot of my patients in practice. When we first start thinking about balance, we have to realize that it's, it's this one-leg standing balance that is the key um, factor in trying to assess somebody's coordination on one foot. Whereas a lot of gymnasiums and approaches towards balance do things where you're on both feet. 
for example, being on a, um, a flexible foam cushion, a balance pad, or maybe a bozu ball, or maybe a, a, a board on a ball that rocks you back and forth. And as I studied balance a lot more, I found the power of doing things with eyes closed and stimulating um, the person or perturbing the person to such a degree that they have to start incorporating mechanoreceptors and proprioceptive function to achieve balance. And um, But these are things that I think you need to do in a doctor's uh, office, mostly. It can be dangerous. Um, the negative outcome of a balanced session can be a fall, and you don't want patients falling down. Um, I've had a lot of near misses. I've lowered people to the ground who are falling, and uh, one of the first steps in doing balance exercises is to teach the person how to fall correctly. Um, so there's a lot of complexity I've discovered with balance exercises. I first thought this could be a good vertigo treatment, and the evidence shows that that's the case and fall prevention treatment. And that's real important when you're over 60 years of age and you are uh, developing what would be known as frailty and you're starting to suffer falls. And this is how we tend to exit life as we get in our older age groups. And it's the falls. It's the fall that to the wrist, to the hip, and the fracture, and the head injury. And so you see this lack of balance um, in an extreme way in the, in the older adult. And um, so when you're looking at that, you could look at that in the same context um, as you look at degenerative joint disease or osteoarthritis, and you see a spine that's very degenerated in this age group. And you wonder, well, what got us to this stage where the spine is so degenerated and there's a hyperkyphosis? And what got us to the point where we can't navigate stairs and we can't navigate a, a bump in the carpet or a unevenness to a street. And, um, and so that made me start to question how I was looking at earlier stages of this in, in younger populations. You know, what happens when the transverse arch of the uh, foot is widened and you develop a, a hallux valgus and, uh, you know, why does that occur? Why do bunions occur? Why do um, people lack an inability to function on one foot? And also, as I was looking at balance exercises, I started thinking more about how a spine functions. And for the most part, a spine is going to function by uh, deviating towards the side that you're standing upon. And most humans are in a constant state of oscillation, maybe not when you're sitting, but when you're standing and you're rotating around 360 degrees of pressure on your feet. And when we put somebody up for an x-ray, let's say an AP uh, full spine x-ray, and we're asking somebody to maintain um, uh, foot flare, for example, and to not correct foot flare, because then it could perhaps torque the ilium if you were to remove pronation and eversion, um, especially external rotation, that that might torque the ilium and uh, the anominant on one side and give you a false appearance to the pelvis. So in Gonstead, for example, we maintain foot flare. 
So I started questioning that, why I'm maintaining foot flare, and is, and is there a different way to um, look at the function of the foot? Should it always be flat, for example? And, uh, and it also led to me questioning this whole idea of maintaining weight on both feet. Um, we have these uh, little scales that are used in the chiropractic profession where we're saying, uh, for example, you bear more weight on one side or the other. But does mm-hmm. a human being really just stand on both feet with equal weight? Does that even occur in nature or right. does that occur for an AP full spine x-ray? And I've come to the conclusion that it's a very contrived position of a human to mm-hmm. maintain weight equally on both feet. And instead, what we're doing is we're in a constant state of oscillation between the right leg and the left leg. Yeah. And um, there's a few things that I use, stories that I use with patients to convince them of how um, the body kind of functions this way. And one of them is a bar. And we all know what a bar is, you know, a bar where you go drink. And then you notice at the bar that the bar's got a bar, uh, a brass bar that you're able to put one foot onto. Okay. Because it turns out people drink longer when they stand on one foot. And it almost feels fatiguing to stand on both feet equally over a period of time. It's much easier to oscillate to the right leg and the left leg. And there was an author named Yanda, J-A-N-D-A, did a paper in JMPT years ago. It was in the early 90s, and I'll have to get that for you sometime. And he showed how contrived the just upright posture, equal weight on both sides is when you're assessing assessing posture analysis or assessing an X-ray. And so I've changed into a more dynamic uh, person in terms of right-left symmetry by instead looking at you at your extreme point when you're standing completely only on one foot. And what we're getting at is, or what I'm getting at, is uh, fundamentally a human has evolved to get up in the morning, walk five to 15 miles, and sometimes find food. And it's a very important function of the human to ambulate. And that ambulation is not a static, equal weight on both sides. And what we're doing with one leg standing balance exercises, we're pausing you during that gait on one foot. And and then trying to extract as much uh, meaningful rehabilitation while you're pausing on that one foot. Another thing that came up for me And uh, early on in my career, I would use these uh, foot levelers orthotics because somebody said, hey, use these foot levelers orthotics. So I would use these things. And then I felt that it didn't wasn't a very robust orthotic. And I drifted into uh, these rigid orthotics. I'd send a patient to a podiatrist. They'd cast the foot and you get these rigid plastic Mm -hmm. orthotics. And then I would look at lifts on shoes and, uh, and I would have a whole collection of heel lifts in my practice down to three millimeters. I would put a lift in somebody three millimeters. And then I started questioning why I'm lifting up this heel three millimeters and why do we lift these things when it looks to me like that the um, forefoot function is really the key to the strength of the arch. And when I passively lift somebody, am I training the muscles? 
and you're really not. And there are many patients that I will give a lift to because they want to be raised passively on one side. But I've switched. I've changed to a person who really doesn't prescribe heel lifts any longer. And instead, I look at the bias of weight and I shift it from the heel to the front of the foot. So if you're able to um, bias your weight to the front of the foot, which is the stronger position of the foot, it's the position that you would run in, um, you start to uh, see that it's almost ridiculous to put a heel lift into somebody because they can just elevate the heel with the strength of their calf muscles and the other muscles in the lower leg um, to elevate the heel any amount you could want certainly three millimeters or a quarter inch or seven millimeters. So now I tend to um, prescribe patients shifting their weight towards the front of the foot. It always perplexed me why the heels of shoes would wear out on the back outside edges. And I didn't discover until maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that really all balance is at the big toe. That's where all the muscular control of balance is. And there's really not muscular control of balance around the heel. And you'll notice if you stand in front of a mirror and you just start to uh, elevate your heels, and hopefully the mirror goes down to your feet so you can see this, you'll notice that your foot narrows, that the transverse arch reduces. A lot of things happen when you bias your weight towards the front of the foot. So of late, I've been trying to, uh, I've thrown away my orthotics and I was, uh, addicted to these rigid orthotics such that I couldn't walk 20 feet without ankle pain. So if I uh, wanted to put on a pair of flip-flops, I couldn't even walk to the corner store without ankle pain. So I got to a point where I was passively increasing my arch, but I wasn't changing the strength. And uh, so that led, led to me getting away from orthotics. Another thing that happened is about... Uh, I guess it's about 10 years ago or so, uh, Runner's World came out with this article on the best barefoot shoe, which of course is an oxymoron, but it's a shoe that enhances foot function. And uh, there was this company named Zero Shoes with an X, and there's your little plug for zeroshoes.com. And, um, and they came up with this little rubber thing that went over your bottom of your foot and runner's world pronounced this as the, uh, the most superior barefoot shoe in existence. And based on that little evidence, I started prescribing zero shoes to patients. I didn't wear them, but I would prescribe them. And that's something I will do. Even if I don't behave in a certain way, I'll still tell patients to behave a certain way. I'll I'll try to use things that are based on evidence, even though I may procrastinate. I'll tell people to reduce their sugar intake, and yet I may eat a donut. So it's not, I don't have a completely narcissistic practice where I get to do everything and you can do it because I can do it. I try to focus on what the patient needs. And um, so I get reports from patients who wore these zero shoes, and they would, um, you know, talk about their virtues and, um, we're really excited about them. So at one point, about two years ago, I finally got a pair of these zero shoes. And my first thing I did is I stuck my rigid orthotics in them. I should back up a little bit. Um, uh, the reason I led to these zero shoes is I went to a podiatrist because I had this, uh, 
ironically, a worker's compensation injury to my ankle that allowed me to see a podiatrist and get these rigid orthotics. And I was doing that for about 20 years. And I showed up at the uh, podiatrist wanting to get some new orthotics. And uh, because they cost five to $700, might as well have the workers' compensation system pay for it. But little known to me was the fact that guidelines had uh, changed the whole workers' compensation world in California. Now orthotics were no longer allowed uh, as an indicated procedure. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't going to be getting new orthotics. So then I asked, well, can I get a referral to the chiropractor so I can at least get my adjustments paid for a little bit? And, uh, and no, they would deny that, but they'd send me to physical therapy and, uh, for six visits. So I went to the physical therapist and they showed me these exercises for my feet for six visits. But after that, I, um, you know, there weren't any more visits allowed. And I thought, I've got to figure out how to strengthen this ankle on my own. And so that's what led me into these zero shoes. And I first walked. Uh, it's always advisable to never start with running when you're barefoot. Um, and I tried to walk very carefully where I'd engage my big toe and I'd push off on my big toe on, on stance phase. And I'd start to grip the ground a little bit more. And that's called toe gripping. It's called sort of walking like a tiger or a lion. It's kind of the, uh, the position of the foot if you were trying to uh, track game in the woods. You wouldn't be doing this heel-toe strike where it'd be crunch, 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 crunch. It's kind of like how you're sneaking up on uh, whatever you're sneaking up on. Um, Maybe another analogy would be the Grinch who stole Christmas. As the Grinch is kind of sneaking around the Christmas tree, you see the Grinch up on the front of the foot. I haven't looked at that cartoon in a long time, so I'm not sure if exactly that's that's the case. And I noticed if I relaxed that big toe in a zero shoe that had no arch in it and I had no orthotic in it, I'd get instant ankle pain. So it's a very good feedback mechanism. Mm-hmm. There's no padding, no heel padding in a zero shoe. So uh, if you do a heel strike um, on concrete, um, you'll know it. And it biases you towards not doing that. And it took about a year and a half to start to walk differently and uh, without a heel-toe strike. And initially, and I'm 57 years old now, so about at age 55, if I tried to walk around in these zero shoes, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd feel like my hips were going to actually pop out of my sockets because... I wasn't using the muscles I normally use to walk. I was using different muscles, but yet those muscles weren't strong yet. And I'd go back to my old patterns and just getting up out of bed and taking one or two steps, I was wondering if I could ever walk again initially. But after seven or eight, nine, ten steps uh, on the front of my foot, then everything would start come back to normal. And now, two years into it, now I wake up. And it feels like I could sprint across the street and bare feet on concrete. And it's a completely different um, feeling to my feet. I'm not looking for shoes that are comfortable. I'm looking for shoes that are uncomfortable, that don't have padding, that allow me to feel the earth. In this case, the earth for me is city streets. And yesterday, as I was walking to do an errand over at the bank, I was uh, on my uh, 13th mile. 
half marathon for the day, walking around on my toes in the streets of San Francisco. And literally, I felt like I was in my socks walking across the street because that's what a zero shoe will feel like. It's There's nothing in them. And, um, and yet I could still do it. My feet were a little sore after 13 miles because this was the uh, yesterday or two days ago, I did another half marathon. So I've done a marathon in these shoes. And this morning I, I, uh, I wake up and I've already walked a couple of miles before this podcast. And I feel like I could go another half marathon and uh, no fatigue at all. And I've really started to appreciate the function of the foot. You know, as chiropractors, we're enamored with this spinal column when we, appropriately so, we're enamored by it. Um, it's this great organ that you, and you got one of, and it's really, really important. And I, you know, I had this dental student in my office and I said, you, you kind of think like the chiropractor, you're real enamored with the mouth and the teeth and the tongue and, and the function of the jaw and, you know, and it's, it's your thing. It's the mouth. Okay. And my, my thing is the spine, but could you imagine if you're a podiatrist and you had two spines, two mouths to look at, like one that's more dysfunctional than the other, one that has more weight bearing than the other, one that's normal that you can compare to abnormal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought, God, it'd be so exciting to be a podiatrist and have two spines uh, <laughs> that you have to work with. And uh, that's how I think about the foot. foot. It used to be a static thing that slipped into a comfortable shoe that I put a rubber heel lift on or rigid orthotic. And the more, you know what they say, you put on a new pair of shoes. Well, is that comfortable? Now I don't want comfort. I want a shoe that doesn't have a barrier between me and, and the earth. Okay. And uh, so it's a completely different way of thinking. And this four foot strike that you can do uh, to strengthen your arch is key to getting the patient stronger and ultimately doing things on their own to improve four foot function. So I, while I do these balance exercises in practice, and I do them very aggressively for the first month of a patient's uh, journey here in my clinic. And maybe they make it into the second month and maybe they make it in the third. And some of my patients, you know, are here for years and they're still doing balance exercises. But I add a lot of this um, rehabilitation into just a patient's daily life. Um, I'm trying to basically kind of get them out of my office, get them to do things on their own. I prescribe vegetables. I don't sell vegetables. I prescribe vitamins. I don't sell any vitamins. I tell you what pill to get. I don't sell them, but I ultimately try to get you to do things, um, to get you out of my clinic. And I have discovered that these one leg standing balance exercises are the, like the key to getting you out of my office to key to improving, not just your four foot strength, your four foot function. But when you're standing on one foot, you're contracting the paraspinal muscles on one side, all the way up into your neck. And I found that this was a great way to stabilize the spinal column, to get it stronger. And, you know, have you ever wondered why patients continue to come in with symptoms? And uh, I have a practice where the fee structure is such a way that people can afford my care. And so they come in a lot. Um, it's not unusual for me to see somebody 20 or 25 times in the first month of care. 
because I'm doing a lot of behavioral changes. I don't know how you change behaviors in patients, but if you don't see people frequently and reinforce things and confront things, patients' behaviors really don't change. If you say something like, well, you need to lose a few pounds, see you next year, you'll notice that we're in an obesity epidemic. Um, In California, 55% of Californians have prediabetes or diabetes. So when you just say things like eat some vegetables, do they change? When you tell people to, uh, well, why don't you take some D supplements? I know it's here on your blood test that you're low on vitamin D. Do they? Do they go out and buy a bottle of vitamin D? How much D should they take? What is the maintenance dose? And I'm not going to go buy your dinosaur kale for you for the rest of your life. I'm going to teach you how to go to a health food store Go buy a few vitamins and minerals. I don't care what brand it is, but I'm trying to get you to uh, lower your risk factors for all sorts of different diseases, not just back pain. And um, so that's my philosophy is to be very aggressive, very comprehensive while you're in the clinic, but then to get you to do these things on your own. And have you ever been perplexed why people continue to come into your practice with these complaints, why they are seen on a monthly basis. And every time they sit down, or maybe you've trained them to stop talking to you. And a lot of chiropractors do that. We do that by sitting them down and letting them face away. And then as we examine, we, um, we ignore everything else, but what we're doing with our hands and the patient shuts up. And, uh, I don't practice that way. I try to get the person to talk to me and tell me about things. But if I'm not addressing their concerns, I'm going to hear it 10 times in a month or 15 times. And I think I would literally blow my brains out if I was hearing these minor complaint issues, which are completely fixable by teaching people how to move differently, have different perspective about pain. I think of pain as a signal, not as a disease. Right. So I don't sit a person down on a still stool, ignore the fact that they are 100 pounds overweight, that they don't eat right, they smoke and drink, they do all these different behaviors, they sit all day, and then I examine them, find a scope reading, and then I'm looking for a bone or a button to press to turn off a symptom. Now, I think it's highly moral for you to do these things, to turn off symptoms, to turn off chief complaints. But I'm more concerned about how do I improve the function so you don't have these complaints, that you can improve your activities of you know daily living, that they don't provoke you. If just walking around is provocative, you need to figure out how walking around could be done differently. And if you'll notice... A lot of people irritate their spine when they're in awkward positions. They're leaning towards one side or the other. So you'll start to see how important it is to be strong on one foot if you're negotiating a baby car seat into the back of a seat or picking up a seven-month-old out of the middle seat of the back seat and bringing the baby out. Um, So I do that just as part of my general philosophy of how I practice. So I do that in the context of your heart being enlarged. When I look at uh, my x-rays, I look at elevated apices of the, uh, of, the, of the cardiac silhouette. I look at the enlargement of the heart. 
And I confront that. I say, well, you're, you're too heavy and your heart's enlarged and you're, you're doing weightlifting with, with your heavy weight. And uh, this is not good. That heart's going to enlarge. And probably when it keeps enlarging, your atria are going to enlarge. And then you'll end up with atrial fibrillation. And then somebody's going to talk to you about blood thinners. And then maybe you'll need a valve replacement. So it's not enough for me to just kind of turn off chief complaints. I try to minimize risks, risks of falling, risks of uh, dietary issues, risks of lack of sleep risks associated with a lack of nutrient intake. And when I first started in practice, I thought all that was uh, impossible to change behavior. And I, you know, I would say things in 1987, like, well, you can get the person. And I literally used to say things like this. Well, you can get a patient to lose weight. Go ahead and try to change their religion as well. And I would just give up before Mm -hmm. I even start. And I was very content with adjusting a 400-pound person on a knee chest table for an L5 retrolisthesis and then think I've done my job. And I thought for some reason that if I addressed dietary issues or their function, their strength or something like this, that somehow it would take away from my bone setting. I call that my bone setting. And I found now that I'm actually in practice for many years that it doesn't take away, that I can do two or three things at once. I'm not ideological. I don't freak out about a cervical curve that's 22 degrees versus 27 degrees or a PI one millimeter. Um, I don't try to fit people into these little boxes like that. And um, so that's what I wanted to kind of address first is generally how things led to this and my general philosophy. And and I guess if you have some questions, David, you could ask me a few before I go into how specifically do I dress one leg standing balance function? Well, I think that's excellent because I think that when you talk about that topic, there's a lot of people who do wonder, well, how did you come to this? How did you get here? And that's a great stream of thought as to how you ended up there. And it's funny for me to see that um, I guess some of my own experiences kind of parallel some of that. I, I didn't know how important the big toe was until I broke mine and then I couldn't do side posture. And I thought, really, a big toe? Um, I, when okay, I put- so, okay. There's, a, there's a good one. Speaking of the big toe. So I'm, I, I've only been using these zero shoes for a couple of years. So, you know, I've been adjusting a lot longer than that. And as I'm adjusting in side posture, um, my more superior leg is braced up against the side of the pelvic bench. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I uh, got an enormous twinge in my knee, like a very distressing twinge, like, well, don't do that ever again. That feels like you're going to dislocate your knee. And then I noticed on my pelvic bench, um, the padding, uh, the, the, my tables right now are about 13 years old, okay? And I've never reupholstered them. It's a testament to the uh, the great table building expertise of Denny O'Hara and Wa- Waterloo, Iowa. <laughs> and I noticed that my shin was up, up against the um, side of the table, but that my femur kind of depressed into the cushion and there was a little hole. So I was creating this shear effect where I was bracing my tibia, but then my femur could kind of displace into the into the depression of the cushion. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, of course, uh, 
brought that up to my chiropractors, uh, Dr. Catone over in Castro Valley. Okay. And I said, you know, I was trying to adjust side posture and I had this crazy thing happened to my knee. And he goes, same thing happened to me. Um, and, you know, probably a lot of these things are, you know, not unusual for people who've been in practice 20, 30, 40 years. But you don't think about these things when you're five years into practice and you have a big quadriceps and you have a new table. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, and I'm cheap and I didn't want to reupholster my furniture, but I started thinking about how much I was pressing on my big toe. And I realized I can't be static with that foot. I have to actually do toe gripping to keep my knee in a good location. So even though I'm braced against the pelvic bench, my arch is very engaged such that all the muscles are surrounding the knee are engaged. And so I just made that problem go away by not reupholstering, but instead engaging my big toe, which was something that was a little more passive when I was adjusting. It was very active when I was walking around and standing on one foot, but not when I was adjusting. I had to kind of retrain myself with that. And uh, and of late, I've been, you know, I, I work with a lot of, um, well, a lot of normal people who aren't athletes, uh, but I occasionally get athletes and there's a circus school here in San Francisco. So I'd get these circus performers coming in and and they were just, you know, greatest strength on earth kind of thing. And, um, you know, what could I do that could help them uh, with their problem? You know, they're not overweight. They're eating some vegetables. Uh, their spines are really strong. And and I noticed that um, uh, with these patients that they would have these deficits um, where they're standing on one foot. And you could do this yourself where you're standing on one foot. And so I should describe this um this positioning. So, so when you look at a person and they're standing and uh, their feet may be uh, externally rotated, this is a, you know, pronation, you have external rotation and you have eversion uh, going on to the ankle. And um, so as you're setting up somebody for an x-ray, we say, uh, well, don't uh, reduce that foot flare because it could torque the pelvis. Well, what I do of late, and I say of late of the last six months is I put the feet straight ahead, but I have them grip with their foot and I have them pop up their arches on both sides. So now their feet suddenly are pointing straight ahead and has nothing to do with the pelvis, has everything to do with the foot function. And um, and if you look at a baby and they're laying supine, you'll notice the feet sort of curved inwardly, that they're sort of in an, in an inverted state. And if you, if you get out to Fiji for your surfing, um, you might see somebody climb a a palm tree, and you'll notice that they kind of grip the side of the tree between their feet. That's a normal foot to be like that, to have a big arch and a high arch, uh, a functioning arch, weight on the big toe. And um, so that I first have to teach patients how to, um, you know, use their foot. And um, so as I'm looking at their feet, I introduce them to their big toe. I say, take off your shoes and socks and I know a lot of the world is wondering why I'm wearing these sweatpants on videos I'm putting up on YouTube. And I I plan to get some Armani sweatpants at some point, but I'm rolling around on the floor a lot and I'm holding your tinea foot in my hand all the time. And, uh, but I first teach the patient how to manipulate their own big toe. And then when I say manipulate, I, I don't mean adjusted. I mean, 
get it out of this um, inactive position. So I, I point the toe straight ahead. I narrow the arch and I take the pressure off the MTP joint. You'll notice that enlarges with hallux valgus and we call this a bunion. And it's really your first metatarsal deviating. And you'll notice that if you kind of squeeze the foot together, the transverse arch hikes up, gets more protuberant uh, vertically. And then the big toe can be pointing more, more straight ahead. Now I'll do this on patients who are 85 years old with the most degenerative hallux limitus slash rigidus with their hallux valgus. I'll do it on the most unstable patient. I'll do the person who has, uh, you know, plantar uh, spasticity due to, a, you know, strokes in their brains. And one of my videos involves a, a guy who got able to walk better started off with a walker. It's episode three in the Gonsta Clinic series. And I'm doing one leg standing balance on somebody who barely even has a hamstring, let alone can even put their heel on the ground. So this, I do this on everybody is what I'm getting at. So I first get down on the ground and I try to explain the patient how that big toe should be positioned to create an arch. And the reason I teach them how to do it is I don't, I don't want to have to keep touching a big toe. And then immediately I got to go to the restroom and wash my hands off to make sure I don't get tinny and I don't stick that into my eyeball or something. So I try to, rather than washing my hands um, every time I touch somebody's foot, I try to teach the patient how to do it themselves. So the feet are pointing straight ahead, the big toes engaged, we call this toe gripping. And right away, you'll see that as soon as there's an arch, that the patient feels like they're falling off to the little toe side. And that's because all their weight tends to be on the back outside heel edges, okay? And, and they're compensating in a way that puts more weight on the outside edge of the foot. So if you suddenly create an arch on the inside of the foot, immediately people start falling to that side. And the first step is you have to get the patient to learn how to fall always towards the big toe side. So as you pop up that arch, you got to make sure that the patient is, is um, you know, in a position where they're not leaning to the outside edge. Um, so that's how we compensate. We lean more. We also widen out our gait as we age. You'll notice men have a have their feet maybe two feet apart as they're 75 years old. You'll see that. And that's because they have no more balance and um, no more foot function to achieve that. So the first step is pointing the toes straight ahead, making sure that the lean of the patient is not there. And then you'll see all these muscular deficits. You'll see this weakness of the gluteus medius. So it sort of starts with getting the strength of the arch and the position of the arch up, which then allows the knee to be engaged more, that the vastus medialis is now active and the knee is not collapsing medialward. And if you can get the knee to not collapse medialward, now you can engage the gluteus medius on the outside of the hip. And this is just something I've learned over the past few years that, that how important it is to get one section of the kinematic chain to be engaged to get the next section. Okay, so you'll notice when somebody first stands that their hip may jut outward, where, and that's a weak gluteus medius. And in gyms, people are trying to achieve strength of this gluteus medius and to try to alter 
the uh, protuberance of their buttock muscles, and they're doing crazy things like squats, and which destroy the lower back, especially if you're bearing more weight on one leg more than the other, or lunges, which tend to blow out knees. And it had never occurred to me, even though I worked out a lot in gyms, that you could just stand on one foot with a soft knee, which is a slightly flexed knee, and you completely engage the gluteus medius, the muscle that everybody's trying to uh, use to alter the pot, the uh, appearance of their uh, their butt. And uh, and it's not traumatic to the knee, and it's not traumatic yeah, to the spine. That's a big deal. I think that's a really big deal because there's a lot of people that I, it never escaped my attention that a lot of people have, um, I hate to say it this way, but I would call it a limp butt. They think they have a fat butt, but they don't have a fat butt. They have a limp butt because they're not getting muscle contraction. And right. And the gluteus medius is, yeah, the gluteus medius is, you know, enlarged, but to pull your butt cheeks up and outward, that's the gluteus medius. The they're, they're actually trying to work the gluteus medius. They don't realize that that's the muscle that they're trying to get at. And, um, and they end up using the gluteus max. Now, when you first have somebody stand on one foot, so they, they bend the opposite leg, um, and that knee on the opposite leg, the up leg is not jutting forward. It's in the same rough plane as the other knee. If it juts forward, it's trying to compensate for you shifting your weight back to your heel heel. So you're going catty corner or kitty corner. So you're teaching somebody how to move their balance from the outside edge of their back heel to the inside edge of the front of their foot, to their big toe. It's an exact diagonal um, to that point. And you'll notice that when people stand on one foot, that they'll start to rotate the up foot side backwards. They'll try to bring the right hip, if you're standing on the left foot, they'll bring the right hip posteriorward, and then they'll fall. They'll first rotate, twist the right hip backwards, and uh, and then fall. And what you want to do instead is teach them to how to bring the right hip forward. Not the right knee, but the right hip. You almost twist towards the big toe side, the, the big toe that you're standing on. And you're actually emphasizing the amount of weight on the big toe. So there's a little twist to that. But why do patients twist in the opposite direction because they've learned how to use the gluteus maximus that way. So if you rotate, then you can engage the gluteus max to hold you up. The trouble is it only holds you up for about a second or two while you're flaying about with your upper limbs like a tightrope walker. And my patients don't get to use their le- their arms like a tightrope walker. They don't get to throw around their head like a bicycle rider for balance. They have to actually have to keep the torso very quiescent, but what is in a state of chaos is the rapid frequency of movement of the ankle and the foot. And that's why we have these balance pads is to get the person to start to rock and wiggle that foot back and forth where you're shifting weight from the front to the back of the foot, to the inside edge, the outside edge. And there's a complete dynamism that is occurring when you're standing. It's not static. And incidentally, as you're spotting somebody on one leg standing balance, I'm constantly looking at their foot while my hand is close to their shoulder. Because what happens is the the foot oscillates and then suddenly it stops. 
and then timber, and the person starts to fall. So you can spot somebody faster if you keep looking at the foot. As soon as the foot stops wiggling around, they're about to fall. And uh, so that's what, how you're trying to train the patient. That, that is, they're not going to just take a stance on the foot with a locked knee and balance like they're balancing a pencil on its end. It's going to be a dynamic process. The knee is flexed. You're going to... Um, move from the inside edge of the foot to the outside edge and back and forth in a constant state of movement. Similar to this Chinese circus trick where you're spinning a plate on a, on a stick. And the mm -hmm. trick to that is you're moving your hand underneath. And the bigger a person is, the heavier a person is, the more upper body mass they have, the more important it is that they not wiggle their core, their spine core, when they're doing this. So it's, it's, it's a function or a, um, not a function, but a, uh, a sign that your core is very weak when you see a spine that has this scoliosis to one side, when you see that the person wiggles around in their neck and the thorax just to stand on one foot. Um, and when the core gets stronger, so like I said, when you're standing on one foot, you're contracting the muscles, the paraspinal muscles on one side all the way up into the neck. And when you put both feet on the ground, they get myoelectrically more silent, okay? So that's this robust contraction. Now, there's a lot of effects of this. So I've talked a little bit about how you're improving the foot function and then hopefully the arch of the big toe. I've discussed a little bit about how it can affect the knee. So one of my big things in trying to improve knee function is to improve the foot function. Um, and to improve hip function, you improve the foot, the knee, and then to improve spine function, get the hip to function better, get the paraspinal muscles to contract. And you're going to find that, um, their strength goes up and strength is measured by how long you get to stand on one foot with your eyes closed. Potentially, if you're just beginning, your eyes might be open. And, um, that strength that you develop, um, is going to, really pay off in all your other activities of daily living. But there's some other things that kind of happen in practice. First of all, a lot of patients have pain and they have catastrophization. They have illness behavior. They have pain avoidance behavior. Um, they have neuroplasticity of the brain and that needs to get changed. We need to change the brain uh, from a pain uh, sensing organ and immersed in the pain experience to immersed in function experience. So when you're standing on one foot, you're going to develop pain. And that pain is not injury pain. It's not a cramp. First, the arch will start to become painful at the calf, the anterior tibialis. And if you're lucky, if those muscles are strong, you might even get some side hip pain. But then you have to get the person to breathe. They have to be relaxed. They can't go into fight or flight. They can't panic. And what happens is when you first start to develop that pain, those pathways are so, so much a super highway that their tendency is to catastrophize, to go into fight or flight. So this is a, I, I have no physical therapy machines in my practice. There is a little ice in a freezer that I've used <laughs> twice in 10 years. And I used to have a gymnasium in my practice. I don't have any equipment. I have no 
modalities of pain control. I'll tell a patient to put some frozen peas on their back occasionally. Um, so this is my pain control technique. If I get the person to learn how to deal with the pain better and to um, not to get into catastrophization, this is a huge impact on patients. And, and I, should, I should say here that um, patients are doing this when they're not on medications. So I don't uh, let you take your Oxycontin or your Lyrica and then tell you to run track, <laughs> run hurdles. That's a disaster. So um, in, in my practice, patients are weaning themselves off of medications. And, and being on medications makes you not uh, understand the tolerances of your body and how far you can go. Even NSAIDs can do that. So my first objective in this practice is to get patient off of those pain medications, make them learn more natural ways of pain control. Uh, but more importantly, we're not going to get to exercise if you can't get off opium. Okay. It's just incompatible with that. And every time I have tried to do rehab on patients who are, let's say, dependent on, uh, on opiates, it's a disaster. It never works. Okay. So remember, I, I view pain as a signal of something. It could be, it can be its own pathology, but in general, it's telling us one thing. And when you have pain in the hip, pain on the left lower back, pain in the IT band on one side, Another thing to think about is, uh, why is that pain there? And then you do a standing one-leg balance test, well, which I'll get to hopefully in a minute, um, and you notice that they're really strong on that side. So then you start to think, okay, maybe they're overloaded on this side. That's why all the complaints are on the left, is because that's how they lateralize. That's how they list. And when I look at AP full spine x-rays, I started correlating that with the one leg standing balance strength. And I noticed, wow, it seems like you have lumbar body rotation and lumbar convexity of any scoliosis to the strong leg side. That's the side that they're habituating towards. And it always puzzled me why I would adjust maybe a rotated sacrum and it would move a lot. So let's say, for example, they have a strong leg on the left and they have a P-L, maybe lumbar body rotation to the left side. And I'd adjust that PL in a very precise way and I'd get a lot of movement and the person would be helped. And every time they returned to my clinic, that thing would move like a mile every single time. And, it, and I thought to myself, why does that move always every time I adjust? Why does that same listing exist there. And as I started doing these one leg standing balance exercises, I started seeing that the um, opposite side of the rotated sacrum would get stronger and that would have an effect on my adjustments. I grade my adjustments. If they don't move, I give them a five. If they move grade, I call it a one. A little less than grade is a two. Uh, a little bit of squeak of movement, I'll give it a four. 99.99% um, of the time, bones move in my practice. They make noises. I'm not somebody who um, uh, who thinks it's doubtful or unknown whether or not a bone moves or not. Like, for example, I thrust and it doesn't move. I assume it didn't move. I don't think, well, let's check with motion palpation, run a scope over it, and then maybe those findings went away, and therefore the bone moved. No, it's completely not that in my it's completely i know when a bone moves the patient knows when a bone moves this is not a nebulous thing and so if you're having trouble in practice where you're 
that's nebulous. You got to improve your technique. Um, but bones just don't move by magic without audibles, without displacements. And so I would adjust somebody, let's say a P-L, and uh, four or five times, 10 times, and I'd improve the strength. And then I noticed the bone stopped moving. And it perplexed me as to why. And that led me to a comparative x-ray. And I'd take another comparative x-ray. And lo and behold, the sacral rotation was zeroed out. And the lumbar convexity was gone. And I had never really seen a lumbar scoliosis change so quickly as when I started doing these one-leg standing balance exercises. Now, I've not developed all my strategies for scoliosis above, but I can tell you there's a way to change lumbar y-axis rotation, lumbar convexity, um, by simply increasing the strength on the concave side. Do you, do you think that that's mostly musculature or is that proprioceptive or neurological or what do you think is making it? I think it's all of it. And I all think you tend to habituate to one side um, yeah. because you've just been doing it that way for a long time. And you start walking in an asymmetrical way. And as you develop, and then somebody takes an x-ray when you're 25 years old or 50 years old, and then you see all this effects of habituation of posture. You know, if you, if you just, you know, you're texting all the time, your head's down and you're, you're curled up in a C position, and then you take an x-ray. It's not, um, I'm not ideological. I don't look at that neck curve and I see it reduced and then think, okay, it's the neck curve and I got to get it to 27 degrees. And if it's not, you're going to die. And, uh, and I, and I exclude everything else. I look at, well, this person is curled up in my waiting room, looking down at their phone in a fetal position. Maybe we should do that. That might help forward head posture too. And, um, so I look at how they're moving in space, what their activities are, um, and then you start to see these things. You can see it a lot in an athlete. And an athlete will be very well aware of, I'll ask them, well, which side is your strong leg? And an athlete will tell you which side is their strong leg. Um, and there's a way, there's a few ways I assess this. And one of them is I'm looking at the time that you're able to stand on one side. But before I do that, I assess the patient without giving them a lot of instruction. And I ask them, well, stand on one foot, pick up one foot, and their eyes are open. And I ask them to just see if they can stand. If they're an older adult, they're not going to do anything with their eyes closed. And they may last a second or two or three or four or five seconds. But if they they can do 10 seconds or maybe they're a circus performer or they're an athlete, then you can get to eyes closed. So I first ask them to pick up one foot. And I don't tell them which foot to pick up. And they'll tend to pick up the weaker foot. And that gives me a hint as to which side is the strong leg. When given a choice, a person will tend to pick up the weaker foot, stand on the stronger leg side. And I'll have a uh-huh. And I don't, you know, judge it and tell the person, uh, you know, what my judgment is. I just, you know, uh, not in an obvious way, just try to get them to choose a side. And then I might ask him, well, do you do any martial arts? Do you ever kick somebody? And, or have you ever played soccer? Have you ever kicked a ball? And I ask him, well, what foot do you like to kick with? And a person who's in martial arts will tend to stand on their strong leg side and kick with their weak leg. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that the foot you're kicking with is the strong leg. It's actually the one you're standing on. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
And then lastly, I'll time it. That'll tell me the strength. And then I have an x-ray that might show this listing to one side or the other. And I would say it's it's difficult to confound these tests, but there are some confounders. For example, surfers and skateboarders tend to have a kind of a double scoliosis. And if their activity is a lot of surfing, they'll have this sort of helical pattern. So that obscures it a little bit when you're um, a surfer. The other thing that uh, confounds this is, um, for example, if you're lateral uh, listing to one side or the other and one leg stronger than the other, you might injure that side more. You might develop a bad ankle, a bad knee, a bad hip. And if you injure it badly enough, you might shift your weight to the other side. So if you have some injuries to your kinematic chain, that could shift how you're bearing one side or the other. But we all have this experience where we're taking an x-ray. We see this AP full spine. We see these deviations. How do you change them? And why does the thing look the same five years later? And that got frustrating to me. And I wanted to change people and change the structure of their spine. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm doing this timing to really evaluate if they're strong on one side or the other. And um, I first teach them how to fall to the big toe side. And I was mentioning how they kind of twist the pelvis out of that position. The other thing people will do is they'll tend to lift their hand on the little toe side, and that's to take weight off the big toe. And the other thing they'll try to do is they'll deviate or they'll twist the pelvis back and they'll get the up foot side behind the other leg. And all these are strategies to get your weight off of your big toe. And um, so it's basically a big toe exercise. And I don't... Um, do these exercises generally unless the person really you know wants to have a mask on but i'm looking at their face when they're doing this when they're doing exercises i watch how they're clenching their jaw i watch how they're breathing and it's really a concentration exercise more than anything else i tell the patient you have all the hardware all the wiring here you want to use the software differently so you don't need a new nervous system to do this you just need to use your nervous system differently Mm -hmm. And I give the example of a patient with a stroke and uh, they're, you know, they can't move their hand, for example, after a stroke. And then you find out that, oh, they can use their hand now and they're able to, you know, use a fork, knife and fork and feed themselves. And how does a person with a stroke change from not able to use their hand to being able to use their hand? Well, and I give this example, I put my my hand in front of my face and I concentrate and I'm like, I'm sort of uh, willing my psyche into my hand and I'm pouring my energy into my hand and I make my finger quiver. And if I can get it to quiver, then I can make it to move a little bit more after that. And that's how you get your hand to work after a stroke. How do you get your foot to work? You have to concentrate. So it's a concentration exercise. So there's a lot of distractions in my office that are helpful to force you to concentrate harder. For example, there's commotion. There might be a television on. There's tiki music playing. That distracts patients. As they're standing on one foot, they're developing pain in their calf or their anterior tibialis. Pain is distracting. 
And so you're watching how they're trying to overcome the distractions. In fact, when your eyes are closed and you're standing on one foot, you'll hear a car door slam on the outside on the street. And as soon as that attracts your attention, you fall. So you're trying to treat, achieve more concentration by giving distractions. So we have patients do things with their opposite hands, which engages the opposite hemisphere of the brain, and it's a distraction technique. And patients tend to concentrate more easily when they suspend their breath. So I teach them how to breathe, how to relax their jaw, not go into fight or flight. And uh, so I'm looking at their face as they're exercising, then I look down at their foot, and I'm watching the distress in their body as they develop pain, as they're standing on one foot, and I keep them going with it. Um, I keep them how to focus their mind on one side of their body. For example, their calf is on fire, and I'll tell them, focus on the left knee, left knee, left knee, left knee, because it's hard to concentrate on one side of your body that's on fire. And if you're on the calf and you're thinking, God, that calf is on fire, it's hard to concentrate on it, but maybe the knee's not on fire. And it keeps the hemisphericity of the brain to that one side. And, um, and when the patient shifts their focus away from the standing leg side, they fall. And they start to prepare to fall. And I start, I teach the patient, okay, you got to think about standing, not falling. You have to think about living, not dying. And you'll notice as they get under distress of the pain that they'll start to wiggle the up leg because they're looking for an escape route. And you got to keep their focus on that painful side. And then when it gets to a crazy level of pain, you switch. And you switch to the other side, you go pick up the burning foot. And they pick up the burning foot. And after about three seconds on that, on the other side, the uh, the up the, the leg they were on before becomes a distant memory and has no pain. And I try to reinforce it with the patient. I say, see how that pain is completely gone now? Now, of course, you're starting to develop pain on the opposite side, but it can be turned off. And yet it'll feel like a cramp or an ice pick that seems like it will never go away. If you do a one-leg standing balance set on one leg, get a burning foot, and just leave the patient like that, they won't be able to stretch this foot to do anything to turn off that pain until you contract the opposite side, and then it disappears magically. Mm. And that amount of pain is way more than a patient coming in and saying, eh, my neck kind of hurts like this and, and goes out to my shoulders. When is it at all? Oh, I always have a bad neck and it's kind of, I'm not talking about an acute disc injury or something like that, but these like little minor aches and pains. Uh, well, you know, when were you getting that? Well, I was sitting for eight or nine hours. Could you just, you know, press that button on your spine and make sitting okay? No, I'm not going to do that. We're going to, you know, sitting and putting lipstick on a pig. And so we're going to get you to a standing desk and maybe oscillate back and forth. So I would say those are the kind of the major highlights that get me into a patient um, to kind of introduce you to this. But really, every patient's different in how they mm -hmm. respond, how you apply things. So I'm constantly not trying to fitting them into a mold, but try to figure out the strategy to get them to achieve more strength on one foot. So it's really case studies that... Um, would get you to start to see how I would do this in different patient kinds of contexts. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think that's excellent. I am. Um, 
I recommend that if people want to know more about this, I would recommend they watch your YouTube videos. Um, then they could actually see this all in, in process. But um, I've seen the YouTube videos. And so what I really wanted was for people to have an understanding of what's going on in your mind. What are, you, what are the subtleties you're looking for? What are you anticipating? And I think that was an excellent explanation of what's happening in there. So I think if people wanted to start incorporating this, it would give them a good start between the videos and listening to this to have an idea of how to start doing that in their practice. Great. And I'm working on a video right now. Um of a bodybuilder, a power lifter. And um, so he's now toe gripping and his feet are pointing straight ahead, which is not the classic deadlift stance for somebody deadlifting six or 700 pounds. And that's what we're talking about here. Um, but he came in with back pain. He came in with a P-R and a little lumbar convexity to one side. And, uh, and he had pain. And then of course I considered you know, chief complaints, the door to the house, not the house itself. I'm not trying to turn off a chief complaint. I'm trying to understand the whole house. And uh, so I watched him on his uh, video of a squat, and I noticed he tended to come up on the stronger leg side, the P-R side. And so we did these one-leg standing balance exercises on him for about six weeks or so, came in maybe 10 times, and he was very enthralled by it, and he sent me a video um, I was trying to tell him now you got to stop deadlifting. This is not good for your spine. You're in your fifties and you're, this is not good. It's a very degenerated spine. And I was trying to encourage him to be more of a trainer rather than to, uh, actually be, uh, you know, the world record holder in a deadlift or something. Um, so along those lines, I, uh, I sent him a video and I, it was a picture of somebody doing, I believe a 900 pound squat, and he did this 900-pound squat, and I think both his tibias uh, broke. And um, so go ahead and look that one up on YouTube. It's <laughs> So I sent him that video, and then he responded by sending a video back to him of doing 670 pounds for three reps and how happy he was. So um, it didn't work for him to get him off the deadlifts, but he's very happy that now his left leg has more strength to it, and it's improved his, uh, his, his overall strength. And it probably does reduce his chance of injury just because he's more balanced. I, I would think so, but I've got to get him to lose weight and eat more vegetables too. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I very much appreciate it. That was very excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Plogger for joining me today. At the very least, I hope he helped to stimulate your thought process and to get you thinking about what underlying issues might be keeping your patients from seeing lasting results. Now, I don't usually do this, but I already went back and I listened to what Dr. Plogger had to say and I practiced doing the exercises to myself as he was saying it. Well, let's just say I fatigued quickly and I decided I needed to start incorporating one leg balance exercises into my own regular routine. If you've never tried it before, give it a shot. See how you feel. As I said before, I've attached a link to Dr. Plogger's YouTube video in the episode description or you can just look it up on YouTube by searching for Greg Plogger Chiropractic. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.